0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Naming Your Stage in Apprenticeship series. And please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 as we continue our practice on Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, Where is your God? A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You're sitting here in a room full of people caught up in the presence of God. All around you, people are singing. Some are even shouting for joy, A few you look around are weeping, but not you. You feel all alone in a sea of people because you don't feel much of anything. When you turn your mind to God, it's like there's a blank screen in your imagination. When you look up, it's like there's a wall between you and heaven. When you look inside your soul, it's like there's nothing there, just an empty wasteland, and you just don't really feel God's presence, and you feel crazy, you think, what is this? Is this me? Is it just like my personality, just like the curse of my Myers-Briggs type, (laughs) or is it sin, Or, or am I just not practicing enough of the spiritual disciplines? Am I not just serious enough like the people around me? Or worse, is this God? Is he cruel? Is he not this God of compassion that Jesus claims he is? Or is he even real? Is this whole thing a figment of my imagination and a mass delusion? Are we just doubting together and calling it church? What is this? You have no category for an experience of God that feels more like absence than presence and you think you're the only one in the room. By the way, you're not. It's just that this is a taboo to talk about in church, in particular in a charismatic stream of church, which is bizarre because we of all people have such a high value for encounter, felt presence of God, experience. We're for all of that stuff. You think that we would be the first people speak to this reality, but often we're the last, and so you feel like you're the only one. You feel like you have gone mad, when in reality, your experience could be a vital stage in the spiritual journey that pretty much all of us have to go through at some point in time. Now, to map out the terrain, there are all sorts of reasons that followers of Jesus, even in the room this morning, don't feel the presence of God in everyday life. I would argue that the number one reason is just hurry, busyness, and digital distraction. It's not, as the mystics say, the problem is not that God is absent, it's that we are absent. We're on our phone, or online, or in our Netflix queue, or just late for work, or in traffic, busy, busy, busy. And when we do slow down and put away our phone long enough to pray, or show up for church, or whatever it is, our mind is still just revved up to this frenetic pace, and we can't come to quiet. Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Not politics, not progressive theology, not ISIS. Hurry, the number one threat we all face to the death of our experience of the felt presence of God. Uh, But that's, by the way, a whole other teaching. And you've heard it before, and you will hear it again from me. (laughs) Another reason is sin in the language of the New Testament. Again, not Portland language, but New Testament language. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed or happy are the pure in heart for they will see God. You could reverse engineer that to unhappy are the impure in heart for they will not see God. Now, to clarify, Jesus never said that at all, but the idea does run through the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the Old and the New Testament, that there is, at some level, and there's grace to frame this whole thing, but still, there is a reciprocal relationship between our experience of the felt presence of God and whether we honor or dishonor God with our mind and our body. The analogy, of course, breaks down, but I think of my lovely wife down here. We are in covenant together. She is, by nature, loving and compassionate toward me and with me to the end. But when I sin against her, she's still with me. We still inhabit the same house. But there is an emotional and relational distance between us, even as we are together in the same home, until I come to repentance. In a similar way, when we persist in sin, and we all sin, but I mean when we persist in it, we forego the sense of God's felt presence in the temple or the house of our body. But again, that is a whole other teaching, when you have heard before and will hear again. Third reason is the demonic. There are multiple examples in the Old and New Testaments of demonic powers creating a block between heaven and earth. Cue the story of Daniel and his 21 days of prayer and fasting with nothing from God. Many think this is the best diagnosis of Mother Teresa's experience, if you're familiar with her or her context in Kolkata at all. But again, that is a whole other teaching. The teaching that I want to give to you this morning is about another reason that many people don't feel the presence of God. The seasons of our life when, yes, we're human and we sin, but we're not in person, sin per se. And yes, we live in a city and we have a phone and we get stuck in traffic and we have hurry, all of that. But that that's not really it. We feel like we come to quiet in our mind and have a basic sense of, the unforced rhythms of grace, and it could be the demonic, but as far as we can tell, it's not, but still, we just don't have the felt sense of presence that we used to. Our experience of God is that of the poet right here in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. Now, most people misread this song due to a beautiful song that was put out in the 70s. And most people interpret this to mean, God, I thirst for you, I desire you, as if that desire is a good thing. But notice that is not quite the imagery of the poet. The imagery is of a deer in the desert who is dying of thirst and comes to the river to drink, but it's bone dry. There's nothing there. In the psalm, thirst is a bad thing, not a good thing. It's something we don't want, not do. There are Psalm 42 seasons in our life with God where we call the desert home, where we thirst for God, we desire the felt presence of God, but when we come to the river, so to speak, When we come to church or to prayer or to the scriptures or to our community, silence, solitude, whatever it is, Sabbath, when we come to the river to drink, it's bone dry. We feel far more of God's absence than his presence. Like the poet, we remember seasons in the past. I think of that line, verse four. I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. I remember when I was at church, I was there, Bridgetown Church that morning, hundreds of people, I was singing along with the best of them, smile on my face. And now I just don't feel anything. I would kill to have that feeling back. Now we just feel far away from God. I think of that line in verse 6, from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon. That, if you know anything about Israel's geography, is as far away on the map that you can get from the temple, the locust points of God's presence. He's saying, I'm as far away as you can get from the presence of God and still claim to be an Israelite. Some of you feel that way. I'm as far away as I could get and still claim some kind of a faith. And you feel sad, quote, my soul is downcast within me. And anxious, my soul is disturbed within me, end quote. And even left on your own by God, twice the poet has this to say, why have you forgotten me? And the voices play in your mind, whether it's in your inner mind or your morning news report or a coworker at work, where is your God? This whole thing's a waste of your time. What if I were to tell you that God has you right where he wants you? That this is one of the best and most important seasons you have ever been through in your life with Jesus. This is a stage that any of us that take the path of Jesus seriously must all travel through at some point in time. And that either you have been through this season in the past, you're in it in the present, or you will come to it in the future. And I'm just here to encourage you with that this morning. (laughs) Now, this phenomena over the years has come to be called the dark night of the soul. Now, that's not language used by any of the New Testament writers. I hear that and think of Christopher Nolan or whatever. But as ominous as it sounds, the language goes back much further to two Spanish mystics in the 16th century, St. John of the Cross and his spiritual director, Teresa. We'll talk more about them next week. Um, Many have called St. John's book, by the same name, The Dark Night of the Soul, the most important book on prayer ever written, which is fascinating because it's about the seasons in our prayer life where we don't have an acute sense of God's presence. Now, what exactly is the dark night? Well, let's start off with what it's not. The dark phrase, dark night, has come into the Christian vernacular in the West, which is fine, but now it's thrown around in all sorts of ways that don't make sense. So to start off, it's not a time of pain and suffering, though the two may overlap in times of pain and suffering. We often wonder, like, God, where are you in this? In particular, if your pain is a form of trauma or any kind of abuse, people that often are survivors of sexual abuse have a real struggle to feel God's presence presence, and that's not God or God's work, that's like evil at work in our mind and our body, and the need is for inner healing. Many people, though, in times of pain and suffering feel a deep sense of the peace of God, a deep sense of, man, I don't get it, I don't know what this is, but I just feel like God is with me, and the language of the New Testament of comfort. Secondly, it's not a time of sickness or exhaustion, though, again, the two may overlap. You're a whole person, and when your mind or body are suboptimal, it's all a part of your soul, and often that means we don't feel God's presence, but that's not the dark night because the second we get better or little Johnny sleeps through the night, immediately we feel God's presence again. It's amazing how many mothers of young children really struggle with faith for about six months, and then they're like, okay, I'm still a Christian. (laughs) Third, it's not a time of doubt, though, again, the two may overlap. More on that in a little bit. Well, then, what is it? Basically, it is a season in our apprenticeship to Jesus where he, many people would argue, intentionally takes away not his presence but the felt sense of his presence, which are not the same thing, in order to do a work of purgation and preparation in us for greater levels of intimacy, freedom, and peace, and love. Now, it's hard to describe because it's dark, hence the name, it's or, or the desert. It's like trying to describe the desert or trying to describe um, the landscape in the dead of night. We can rarely even see what it is until the sun comes up and we're through and into a new season. When you're in the dark night, it's as much of an unlearning as a learning, as much of a non-experience as an experience. So the question is, how do we know if we're in a dark night? And that's the reason we don't really have this sense of God's presence and it's not hurry or sin or the demonic or something else. Well, St. John's self-diagnostic was basically to pay attention to your heart's desire. If your desire for the world has gone up, and your desire for God has gone down, then that's not the dark night. But if your desire for the world has gone down, you just can't get the same satisfaction, even from any of your earthly, as some would say, desires for food or drink or time with friends or a movie or night out or sunshine or whatever it is. And even though you can't get the same satisfaction from God, either that you used to, still deep in your heart, you ache for a return of the felt sense of God's presence. If that's you, the odds are very good you're in a dark night. Meaning, if you, you know, draw God to your mind, and you sense nothing, and you think, eh, what's on Netflix? That's probably not the dark night. That's probably something else you need to deal with. But if you come to church, and you're still here, but it's boring, which that could just be me, by the way, and not the dark night. I I give you that. But let's say it's a really good one for me, all right? (laughs) And Ziggy's just at his prime, you know? Or you come to the Bible and it's just ash in your mouth. Or you come to prayer, listening prayer, and it's just crickets in your mind. And in those moments, you sense very little, but at the same time, you feel a pang of sad desire, a kind of spiritual bereavement. The odds are very good you're in a dark night. Because in fact, one of the main things that God is doing in our life through the dark night is a a re. Working of our heart's desire, setting us free from our desires for the other things that we think we need to live a happy life, or what we call attachments, and setting us free to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbor as ourself, even our enemy, and to live with more joy and peace than we ever thought possible. Meaning in the dark night, or if you prefer the desert or whatever you want to call it, things are not as they seem. In fact, often things are the exact opposite of what your inner emotional sense is. Let me give you four examples. First off, in the dark night, it feels like we're losing God's presence. Actually, God is deepening our intimacy with him. It feels like we're farther from God, not closer, but that's because early on in the spiritual journey, we equate our feelings of God with God himself, when in reality, feelings are nothing more than messengers from the kindness of God's spirit. Hence, people get stuck in immaturity when they think they are worshiping God, but really they are worshiping the feelings they get from God. To mature us, God has to, in grace, teach us to walk by faith, not by feelings. And the best way to do that is to take away those feelings for a season of time and see what we do. Do we run back to the world? Do we run back to sin to look and feel good? Or do we stay in it, waiting on God? This is kind of the pattern of pretty much any form of intimate relationship. Think of any couple in love. I think of when my wife and I were dating 20 years ago now. I mean, we literally never ran out of things to talk about. We could talk for hours, for days, for weeks at a time. Every time I was just, just the idea of her came to mind, and I would begin to tremble. True story. Like, this was back in the day. We're so old and so old-fashioned that we didn't have any cell phones when we started dating. Remember this? And she had this super old-fashioned thing where she's like, a man should call a woman, a woman should not have to call a man. That's her thing, not mine. That's her family of origin. Don't judge me, all right? <laughs> And so I remember before I would call her, like, waiting by the phone, and I would, like, this is my personality, I would sketch out conversation points just to make sure there was no lull, (laughs) right? Just to make sure, because there's nothing worse than, like, you really want to marry somebody and you just can't think of anything to say. So I literally had a pad open. I remember I would shake as I would, like, pick up the phone and dial back in. So You're like, you're really old, aren't you? And weird. Yes, I am. But I remember those early days we could just talk for days or weeks at a time and all sorts of feelings the moment even the thought of her came to mind We're about to celebrate eighteen years, right? yeah, in just a few weeks we're at that stage where you can't remember how many years it's been or whatever and gosh it's it's not like that anymore. We still love to chat we're still great friends but We run out of things to say at some point, and then we just make a grocery list together, because that's (laughs) what you do. And in our marriage, we do it together, all right? Um, And we still have feelings for and from each other. But our greatest delight now is really not an emotional high. It's just to live shoulder to shoulder. But let me tell you, the level of intimacy, trust, vulnerability, connection that we have now is a 1,000 times deeper than Anything that was there when we were dating or newlyweds, there there is a level of vulnerability. We've been through pain. We know the worst in each other, and we're still with each other. A level of knowledge of one another. Two have become one. It is a deeper intimacy than we've ever been through before. But it's a very different timber of relationship than it was in the beginning. In the same way, though it doesn't feel like it, God is actually deepening our intimacy with him through the dark night. In fact, this is one of the main things God is up to in the dark night, teaching us that our feelings are not always an accurate barometer to reality. Secondly, it feels like we're losing our faith. Actually, God is refining our faith. In the same way that we confuse our feelings of God with God, We confuse our ideas about God with God. And we all have ideas about God that are right and correspond to reality. And all of us have ideas about God that are not right and don't correspond to reality. I've said that to you before, like the Bereans is a model in the New Testament. Don't take everything I say for granted. I figure that at least 10 to 20% of what I say in any given teaching is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 10 or 20% is wrong. (laughs) It's not like I sit there Thursday morning like, where should I put the heresy that makes me wealthy? (laughs) Um, Yeah, let me put it right here. Like, no, like, I think that everything I'm saying is, and hopefully it's not heretical, but it's off base, or it's the wrong emphasis, or yes, but, or there's no nuance, or whatever it is. In the same way, none of us have a mind that is 110% right on. The dark night is a time of of refining and stripping down not just our feelings but our ideas about God. But the end goal is not just right doctrine. You don't need the Dark night for that. You can get that from an N.T. Wright book. The end goal is a heart posture of trust in God himself, not in our feelings or our ideas or the ideology that we have about God but what in the writers of the Bible call his name who he is. Now, don't misread that as some progressive thing. You know me, I'm orthodox to the core. That's not called into question at all what I think to be the writings of the New Testament, which I still, of my own free will, choose to live under as an apprentice of Jesus and trust as a signpost to reality. But the older we all get, the more we realize as we, yes, cling to orthodoxy, there is so much mystery in God and that's scary at first in particular if you come from a conservative background and one of the things that dark night is doing is just refining that anxiety that arrogance that we all have about our ideas about god to move us to a deeper place of trust in god himself third the dark night feels like we're regressing in our maturity actually we're progressing It's over my pay grade to explain how this works at a psychological or even spiritual level, but there is something about the phenomenon of the dark night, and maybe it's just that we spend so much time soul-searching, but we become more aware of ourselves as we really are, of the good and of the bad and of the ugly. Before we were aware of our behavior, but now we're hyper-aware of our motivation behind our behavior and just how narcissistic it is. Aware normally by this this time you've been well-loved by God for a number of years, and we're more aware than ever of all the ways that we do not mirror and mimic that same love to others in our close circle. Something about the dark night is like a mental picture of our life with no filter on it, no Instagram, no Visco, none of that, just as we actually are. What if God is graciously in love exposing our sin so that we can see our emptiness apart from him and realize we can't save ourselves? Spiritual formation is not a self-help improvement project with Jesus there to baptize your endeavor. It is a spiritual journey where we just say yes to what God is up to in our life. More than that, God is often cultivating a greater capacity for awareness and sensitivity, not just of our own sin, which is what we feel in the moment, but of him. Teaching us how, more on this next week, to see past our ideas and feelings of God, To join God Himself in His love. And so a profound knowledge of self comes out of this time, as does a profound knowledge of God and His love. Even though it feels like it's just exposing how messed up we are, actually, it's elevating our consecration, devotion, or if you prefer in the language of the New Testament, our holiness. It's a kind of purgatory, but in this life, not the next. Now, again, that might sound weird to you. Protestants all, for the most part, misunderstand the doctrine of purgatory as a Catholic idea. But if you actually read a good Catholic theologian make a case for purgatory, it's one of the most compelling things you'll ever come across. Any good Catholic theologian will say, this is not in the Bible, this is common sense. And it's an attempt, whether you agree with it or not, to answer the question, how do people die who are just barely kind of followers of Jesus, but really call cult- Christians, right in the grace of God, but nothing like Christ, no, very little work of spiritual formation, and then enter straight into the kingdom of God. Now, the Protestant or in particular the evangelical view is just assumes that at death there's some kind of a light switch, like you die, you're a grumpy, old, bitter person, but you have faith in Jesus, so you end up at the right place, and then boom, You're wonderful the next morning. (laughs) Now, that could be true. I hope that's right. The Bible doesn't teach that, though. The Bible is just silent on this. And so many very good theologians down through, of course, there was all sorts of views of this idea, said, well, there has to be something, if not in this life, before the next to purge you, to burn away the sin in us, to create in us the capacity to enjoy God and his kingdom forever. Now, set all that theology aside. My point here isn't to get you to believe in purgatory. I don't even know what I think. I just, but what the master's, (laughs) I'm just here to mess up your theology, that's all. (laughs) But what the master's prayer would say is the dark night is a purgatory in this life, not in the next. It's a purging God is doing that work now burning away in you to create in you and cultivate in you a greater capacity than ever before to be the kind of man or woman that God has to rule over his world forever. And it's God at work in you now. The anonymous 14th century British monk and author of The Cloud of Unknowing, which, depending on how you interpret it, is another name for the dark night, writes about this experience. Slowly, God, or he, those in the dark night, begins to realize that the suffering he endures is not hell at all, but is his purgatory. The dark night is God's way of getting us ready for the next stage of our life with him in the world. On that note, finally, it feels like sadness and anxiety, but actually God is setting us free from our attachments and anxieties to live in joy and peace. One of the hardest things we ever have to do in our spiritual journey is realize or release the illusion of control to God to let go of our attachments, again, all the things that we think we need to live a happy life, what Thomas Kelly called our emotional programs for happiness, what Calvinists call the idols of the heart, to just let them go and accept whatever comes, the good as gift, the hard as, in the language of AA, the pathway to peace. On top of that, one of the great challenges of the modern world in general, follower of Jesus or not, is anxiety. Though that is not a new problem, it is a human problem. Jesus' longest teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is made up of 14 kind of teachings all put together, the longest one is in chapter 6, and it's all on how to live a non-anxious life. And in it, Jesus ties our anxieties to our attachments, or in his language, our worry to what we worship. There's the line, you cannot worship God and money, next line, therefore do not worry about your life. The two go together. Gerald May, who's a psychiatrist and spiritual director and also an expert on St. John and Teresa's work on the dark night, defines the dark night as, quote, an ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments and compulsions and empowered to live and to love more freely. There is something about the dark night, and again, it is a little over my pay grade to parse out, but there's something about losing control that does a deep work of freedom in us. By losing control, I mean all of our formulas for how we experience God break down it would be really easy to take all of the material practicing the way over the two and a half years and formalize your relationship with Jesus. I do this right thing. I have this rule of life. I Sabbath. I come to church. I'm in a community. I do morning prayer. I do this kind of listening prayer. I do the examine at night. All great stuff. But it would be really easy to think if I just crack the right formula, boom, I'm there with God. But something happens in the dark night where we do all the right things and it doesn't happen. Through that, we realize, the obvious, that we are not in control of our relationship with God. We're not in control of our spiritual formation. This is not a self-improvement project with Jesus there. We can't save ourselves. We can't manipulate God to give us the life we want. He's better than that. He's more loving than that. And so all of it goes out of our hands. And at first, most of us, unless if you're really mature, just feel melancholy and anxious But when we go through it, God does this work of, as May called it, liberation in our soul. And we come out deeply happy and at peace and with a radical acceptance of love. We relax. We become what Edwin Friedman called a non-anxious presence. I can't think of something more needed for our city and our nation right now than a non-anxious presence. You know, in America, we have a high value for passion and charisma, which is fine, but as my British friends all like to say, intensity is not a fruit of the spirit, (laughs) which I love. One of my, my all-time favorite Catholic writer is Ronald Roheiser, and in his framework, there's four main things that God is up to in your life. You know what the fourth one is? He calls it mellowness of soul. I love that. One of the four main things God is trying to do in your life and mine is mellow us out. In the dark night, God is mellowing us. He's gently just forcing us to relax, to slow down, to let go, to stop striving and just put our trust in him. Think of older, wiser followers of Jesus. They are pretty much to a T, calm and at peace and stable. They walk into the room, or you sit down with them for coffee or a therapy session or a pastoral meeting or whatever, and you just, I will have this happen to me. I will literally feel my heart rate slow down to match theirs. I love, as a person that is not yet a non-anxious presence, I love to be around people like that. I was just in the UK a few days ago at this kind of gathering of all sorts of people from all over England, and they invited one of the main church leaders in the world that most of us had never even heard of. He's a Nigerian pastor, Pastor Enoch. One of Time Magazine just called him one of the 20 most influential people in the world. He leads a monthly prayer meeting in Nigeria for a million people. The pre-gathering prayer, I feel great. If twenty-five, We had like over 25 people at pre-gathering prayer this morning, I felt amazing about that. Their pre-gathering prayer, Gerald, has 250,000 people. And that's the monthly one. One, not the annual one, which is over three million people, right? So, and he's full-on Pentecostal. I mean, full, the whole thing, but it was, the most striking thing, because there's a package that you expect with the Pentecostal, you know, leader, national leader, 20 most, you know, influential people in the world. He was one of the most calm, non-anxious, mellow people I have ever been around. He prayed for me in a moment, put his hands in a gentle way in my forehead. And there was just this peace. That is not the one-off odd notice. That is what most people like become like as they follow Jesus in time. Many of them, you know how that came about? It came about through suffering and through things like the dark night. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, John Mark, how do you know all of this? Well, unfortunately, not just by reading books, which I would be fine to just read books and give you a summary but from personal experience. I've been in this um, twice and I'm in it right now and it's been a while. It's been, this one in particular, without a doubt, the most difficult season that I've ever been in with Jesus in my relationship with God. It's really weird for me because I'm the pastor at a church so like my job is to help people feel the presence of God. I've thought about taking a leave of absence, but I have no marketable skills. (laughs) And uh, so here I am to teach you. (laughs) Uh, No, I have thought about it. I do have, in theory, I could do something, but I feel like you did this to me, so this is your responsibility, you know? But in all seriousness, as hard as it has been, I'm into it long enough now to see the goodness of it and even to recognize the work that God has already done. And I don't know how long this will last, but I honestly love Jesus more than I have ever loved Jesus in my whole life. My desire for Jesus is deeper than it's ever been I feel more free of my attachments and my anxieties and the things I used to worry about and think were necessary to live a happy. I feel not 100% free, but more free than I ever have. I feel more humility, more aware of the lack of a formulaic reality to anything. And I feel more at peace and at rest than I have ever been in my whole life. Now, I don't know how many of you are at this stage. Um, A spiritual director that I know who spent years on staff at a church said in her opinion, at any given moment in any given church, 20% of the church is in a dark night of the soul. I have no data on that. I have no clue if that's close to the mark because again, it's a taboo. Most of us feel like we have to hide. And so I just have no way of knowing what that number is, which is tragic. If you hear nothing else today, hear this, you are not alone. You do not have to hide. And this is God at work in your life to grow and mature you into a greater freedom to love and joy and peace. A young monk once came to Thomas Kelly for spiritual direction. And he said, you know, Thomas Kelly, if you know his works Catholic kind of master of prayer. He said, man, I just, when I pray, I don't feel God's presence like I used to. I I, I think I'm doing all the right things. I don't think I'm in sin. What's wrong with me? And Kelly said to him, God is wrong with you. (laughs) I love that. Early on in my dark night, I made an appointment with Father Gantz on the other side of the river, or this side of the river, sorry, and who's uh, was a Jesuit priest in town. And, you know, in many ways, um, the Jesuit order and the Catholic devotional stream has such a high value for prayer in the same way that Protestants made the Bible the center of devotional life. There's a stream of the Catholic church that made prayer the center of devotional life. So they just have a lot to offer on this kind of a thing. So I made an appointment, and I said, I, th- I think I'm in a dark night, but I'm not sure. And after a conversation, he said, yes, you absolutely are. And then, of course, in typical me fashion, I said, all right, so how do I do this well? I don't want this to last a minute longer than it has to. I hate it. How do I just, like, kill it at the dark night? Like, I have my notepad out. I was like, what, how do I do this? And he said one line to me that changed everything. He said, John Mark, the dark night isn't something you do. It's something that God does to you. St. John called it the, quote, passive dark night. The dark night is a great example of passive spirituality. It is something that God does in us, and our job is basically just to welcome in trust and in faith and do our best to cooperate with what God is up to. So whether it's 20% of you or 2% of you, just really fast before we end, a few very practical thoughts, emotional thoughts, but very practical thoughts on how to cooperate with God in the dark night. First off, rest. Don't try harder, like, to feel God's presence. You know, I'm all for the spiritual disciplines. You clearly know that. But the solution is not to over-medicate with more spiritual disciplines. Because the source of the dark night isn't your laziness or lack of initiative. It is God's work in your soul. So the, the, like the, the way out of this is not read your Bible more. I was going to read the Bible in a year. and I'm going to read it once every single quarter. And I'm going to come to church twice every Sunday. And I'm going to join three Bridgetown communities. That's not even allowed, okay? But whatever. <laughs> like that's not the way forward. You don't fight your way through a dark night. You rest your way through In fact, I think one of God's intentions, I think, in this season is for it to function as an emotional and spiritual sabbatical for you, kind of a prolonged Sabbath. Keep doing the spiritual disciplines, but don't overdo them, and I would encourage you to focus on practices of rest, like Sabbath, stillness, even sleep, which by the way is a spiritual discipline. It is a practice based on the life and teaching of Jesus. Sometimes they had to wake him up. Seriously, more and more when I do spiritual direction with people, my first kind of assignment is go sleep. Go spend a week sleeping nine hours a night and then come back to me we'll talk about prayer. You're just too tired to encounter God's presence right now. There's something about stillness, about rest, nothing to do in this season but that quote from Kassad a few weeks ago, to suffer lovingly. I love that. Secondly, wait patiently, it's a season, it will not last forever, it feels like it will because there's no end date on the calendar, and there's some kind of inner psychological experience, again, over my pay grade, when you don't know if something's gonna last another day or another decade, it does this weird thing to your mind. But St. John, listen carefully, his hypothesis is, and this is not chapter and verse in the Bible, so you're welcome to disagree, but his hypothesis was, if you ask God for the dark night to end, God just might answer your prayer, but you will go backward in your maturity and get stuck, not forward. So when that came to my mind, that changed my entire prayer life. From God, take me out of this, wrestling, like wrestling with God kind of thing, to God, take me through this. Just give me the faith and fidelity to stay with you as long as it takes for you to do the work. Third, trust Again, in Jesus, not in your ideas about Jesus or your feelings of Jesus, but in Jesus himself, in his name. Ideas ideas and feelings about God are wonderful. They are gifts, but they are not God. They are nothing more than his messengers. And in the dark night, our ideas of who God is are stripped down, but then we are free to embrace the mystery of God, the cloud of unknowing with trust. Just as Jesus said, refuse to let your heart be troubled. Four, slow down and enjoy the simple pleasures of life. Think of the word picture of the desert. If you've ever been to Palm Springs or somewhere in the desert in a resort, you know, the desert is actually very beautiful, but it's an acquired taste, very few people, like, name the desert as their ecology of choice. You know what I mean? Like, most people want a beach house or a cabin in the mountains, or they love the Swift and Very few people are like, what's the most beautiful place you've ever been? The Sahara, New Mexico. <laughs> like, nobody says that. But actually, if you've spent time in the desert, Joshua Tree or something, it's incredible in its beauty, And something about the desert, because the beauty is small, it's not like all around you, like walking through Forest Park, you have to slow down and pay close attention. Oh, there's a succulent right there. Well, look at the variation in that rock. Look at how that sand is almost pink. Look at how it looks in the sunrise compared to midday to sunset. And you actually have to slow your mind and body down to savor the beauty and the goodness of the moment. I think in the dark night, that's how we move through it. Slow down, savor the little things, practice gratitude. This can be a joyful, believe it or not, season in your life with God. Five, don't doubt in the desert what God said in the river. Right after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, God spoke over him, this is my beloved son on whom I'm well pleased. He then goes into the desert, as you know, where the enemy then spoke doubt into his mind. If you are the son of God, the very thing God just said, this is what you are. This is the fundamental lie of the enemy from Eve in the Garden of Eden to Jesus in the desert to you and me in the dark night today to question the word of God. Did God really say that? Is that really true? Is he really good? Is he really who you think he is? And I believe the primary stratagem, or at least one of the primary stratagems of the enemy in times of spiritual dryness is to sow seeds of doubt to sabotage God's work in our soul. Many people lose their faith in a dark night. Jesus was wise to live by what God said in the river not by what the enemy said in the desert. We would be wise to follow his example. If you're in the desert, if you're in that kind of a season, live on a past word from God. Go with that. Trust in that. Go back, read old journal entries, prophetic words, dreams. Go back to answered prayers. Go back to seasons when you had more faith and confidence in God than ever before and live from that place until your time in the desert is through. Sixth, live in community. The enemy will do to you what he did to Eve in the garden. He will attempt to isolate you before he begins to lie to you either just to get you away from church in general or just to get you go inward and kind of not open up in your community. Either way, you are playing right into his hand. Then he can lie to you and there's nobody around to speak truth from fiction. When our faith is weak, we need more than ever to be around those whose faith is strong. When we're in the dark, we need to be around people who are in the light and let their faith, let their fidelity, let their light, let their robust confidence carry us in our season. This is gonna sound weird, but some of you are hearing this on the podcast. I don't know who to look at right now, but some of you are hearing this on the podcast and you've not been to church in months. Don't let the enemy play his hand. A podcast is not a church. We need community more now than ever before in the dark night. And finally, release the illusion of control. An illusion is the key word there. It is an illusion. Release your relationship with God to God. This is on him, not on you, so relax, relax. And just accept his invitations in this season and just welcome his work. Just God, I find myself praying this every morning. God, just have your way. Do your work. Set me free from my attachments, my anxieties. Set me free to a deeper level of love and union with you. This can actually be a sweet season in your relationship with Jesus of rest and Sabbath and trust and quietness and gratitude and the simple pleasures and trust in the community around you. I love John's advice for how to posture our heart during the dark night. Quote, allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. Although it may seem clear to them in the dark night that they are doing nothing and are wasting their time, the truth is, that they will be doing quite sufficient if they have patience and persevere in prayer without making any effort, contenting themselves with merely, I love this, a peaceful and loving attentiveness toward God and in being without anxiety. That reminds me of James 1 that has been in my mind for days now. Consider it pure, what? Joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and the dark night is a kind of trial, because you know that the testing of your faith, that can be translated, the refining of your faith, that's what this is, produces what? Perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Don't walk away now. Don't abandon it now. Stay faithful in prayer. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So that you may be mature. Come to the end of the spiritual journey. To close, let me just read over you on that legendary Irishman C.S. Lewis who went through a dark night of his soul that he's written about in an extensive way. But in Screwtape Letters, his masterpiece of satire, he has the senior demon, Screwtape, write to the apprentice demon, Wormwoods. So everything here, if you're not familiar with this work, is 180. The enemy here is Jesus, right? The patient is you and I. He writes this Sooner or later, he, God, withdraws. If not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature, that's you and I, to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. The prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He, God, cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe with which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.